Take your Bibles and turn once again to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And I know you probably don't believe this, <clears throat> uh, even though I did see my shadow on Groundhog Day. We are going to finish the sermon, this long-running series on the, the greatest sermon ever preached. We'll wrap it up today. Please pray with me that the Lord will show me what to do after this. I'm praying about some things, but I hope you've learned something. I hope God has taught you some and deeply impressed upon your mind and heart some lessons. Today, Jesus, the master teacher, as we deal with the closing verses of uh, Matthew 7, which are not really part of the sermon, <clears throat> but this, is, this whole sermon is a mini Bible. It's the magnum opus of our master. It is his defining message. And as I've said before, it staggers our thinking. It challenges our preconceptions about the Bible. It corrects our mistaken notions. It stops our mouths while it opens our eyes. It's the sermon that keeps on preaching because it's inspired. And I pray it will be that in practice and as well as in theory. Please don't stop meditating on this marvelous gem of Scripture that is found in three chapters here, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Again, I remind you, it is for us, not the Jews. It is for now, not the kingdom. Please give attention to the Sermon on the Mount. The people that heard it gave attention, but I'm not sure they did it in the way I want you to do it. Verse 28, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. They were amazed. They were dumbfounded. They'd never heard anything like it before. Why? Verse 49, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes, not as the rabbis. They never spoke with such authority. They just quoted others. They just read off the teleprompter. And the thing that's conspicuously absent here is we don't read that anyone, though they were amazed and dumbfounded and astonished, we don't read that anyone got saved. We don't read that anybody believed on Jesus' name. We don't read that anybody submitted to his authority as God in the flesh. You know, it's a whole lot easier to just throw a compliment at Jesus than it is to commit to him. And the only appropriate response to this sermon for anybody, Jew or Gentile, would be that of Thomas when he fell at the feet of the resurrected Christ and said, my Lord and my God, and then we go out and put it into practice. And we believe Thomas did. We believe that he gave his life as a missionary to India. So as I wrap up this literary and theological masterpiece today, I don't want you to see the sermon so much, as inspired as it is. I, I, I want you to see the preacher. And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about Jesus. 
He's the preacher of this sermon. We will all give account to God for what we have heard over the last 41 messages. It took probably about a year and a half. Remember, to whom much is given, much shall be required. Two weeks ago, before Brother Peters came and spoke last week, we talked about what this authority meant for Jesus. Today, after a brief review, we'll talk about what it should mean to us. You say, Pastor, you get up and preach pretty dogmatically and passionately. Should we do anything else? Do we just, do I just make suggestions to you? Is it really humility to just say, now you can take this or leave it. I just want to dish this out. I just want you to bounce. I just want to bounce this off of you. Is that New Testament preaching? I don't think so. Is that brash and fleshly? I hope not. Briefly reviewing, what did Jesus mean? What did it mean for him to say that he spoke with authority? Well, we talked about this. First of all, he was original in what he said. Nine times in the course of this sermon, he said, ye have heard, or close something similar to this, ye have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. Wow, what boldness. Sounded like he was correcting Scripture. He wasn't. He was correcting the glosses, the oral interpretation of Scripture. And then he would proceed to say something that startled them because it was so different from what they had read or heard. It wasn't trite, it wasn't hackneyed, it wasn't overworked, it was fresh, it was spontaneous, it was impactful. As I said, he did not hesitate to correct the spin and the glosses that the scribes and Pharisees had put on the Ten Commandments. Even beyond that, he didn't hesitate to give the true spiritual meaning of the law of Moses. Jesus was very original here. But I say unto you. Secondly, he was confident and certain about what he said. He didn't say, now I may be wrong, but I think. Twenty-five times in the Gospels, Jesus introduced a profound statement with the words, Verily, verily, truly, truly. It really means in the Greek, amen, amen. Usually amen, amen is said by somebody else at the end of something that a preacher says, but Jesus said amen, amen to what he was about to say because he knew it was true. He was sure of himself. He wasn't like so many today who celebrate doubt. Jesus was original in what he said. He was confident and certain about what he said. And thirdly, and this hasn't been emphasized enough, I feel, he came from the outside. You say, what do you mean? Over and over again, he said, I am come. Throughout the Gospels, not just just Matthew, not just the Sermon on the Mount. Only once did he say, I was born to do such and such, as he stood before Pilate. I was born to bear witness of the truth. For this cause I was born. That's the only time. The rest of the times he said, I am come. How would that have struck you if you had heard him in that day? 
Come from where? Come from heaven. Come from outside. No wonder the multitudes were astonished. What did he mean? Who is this man? I mean, he looks just like us. There's nothing special about him. We know his family. They're right here in Nazareth with us. I'm sure some lady said, I babysat for him when Mary had to go to the market. Where in the world did he get his authority? Who does he think he is? Well, you can't go back and re-preach the first message, but why did he say that he had come? He said a number of things. He said, I came to fulfill the law. I came to reveal the Father. I came to give eternal life. He that hath the Son hath life. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. If you have eternal life, you have Jesus. You can't get one without the other. He said, I'm come to judge. All judgment has been given to the Son. We'll talk more about that. He is the judge of all men who will be in, and this is none other than Christ. As we look at verse 22 of chapter 7, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied, preached in thy name, in thy name have cast out devils, in thy name have done many wonderful works, and then will I, Jesus is talking, I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. There will be people expecting to be admitted to heaven, and they will be shocked and petrified when they hear Jesus speak and say, depart from me. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that this judge will have a terrifying countenance. We have a vivid description of the glorified Christ. His head and his hairs are white as wool. His eyes are as a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. His voice is as the sound of many waters. Out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. From his face the earth and the heaven flee away. It's hard for me to use language to depict that in a more dramatic way than it is. I can't, in fact, I can't even approximate it. This is the glorified Christ striking terror to hearts. He will not be a soft touch. He doesn't get senile in his old age and sweep sin under the rug. There's coming a day when the day of mercy will expire, and those who have sinned away their day of grace will not have another chance. Jesus is the one who will open the seals and pour out the vials and ordain the last trumpets to be sounded. It's going to be pretty stern stuff. And what will be the point of judgment? Are you listening? Revelation 20, 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Is my name written there on the page bright and fair in the book of God's kingdom? Is my name written there? That's all that matters. What a fateful day. And Jesus said about that in John 9 verse 39, for judgment I am come into this world that they which see not might see, 
and that they which see might be made blind. What did he mean by that? It almost sounds like double talk. He meant that he did not come to call the self-righteous. He said that in other places. That would be confirmed in their blindness. They didn't get the parables. They were just further blinded by them. But those who see not, who genuinely know not what they do as he would cry from the cross, pray for them. They would receive the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thanked God for the illumination of the Spirit? Have you ever thanked God that you, that the gospel was not foolishness to you, but it was the wisdom of God and you received it as such? Because most of the world doesn't and won't. Jesus came from the outside for some very definite reasons. He speaks of himself and of his life in the world as being different from that of anybody else. Hardly ever does he say, I was born for such and such a purpose, but he did say over and over again, I am come to do thus and thus. And the point I'm making is that kind of talk turned heads. That got the attention of the people of his day, and it should get our attention. But what I want to talk about today is what should Jesus' authority mean to us He didn't do this just for show. He wasn't trying to bring a shock and awe campaign. In fact, he refused to gratify the carnal Pharisees when they came to him and said, show us a sign. By what authority do you do these things? Do a little hocus pocus for us. He refused to. He responded, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Whoa. And he changed the subject to that of salvation. Talking about the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he said, just like Jonah, they all knew who he was, just like he was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. What was he doing? He was speaking of his approaching death, burial, and resurrection, which is the heart and basis of the gospel. My friends, if we do not submit to the authority of Christ, who is the only door to heaven, we have missed it. The Sermon on the Mount has done us no more good than it did Mahatma Gandhi. What should it mean? First of all, His words are infallible. If we understand the authority of Jesus, it means His words are infallible. How could Christ's words be authoritative if they were not free from error? I mean, how can we pick and choose about this? How can we, uh, Gandhi tried to, we mentioned him a moment ago. He wanted to celebrate the exalted teaching of Jesus, but he didn't want to admit that Jesus was divine. If we are to take at face value Christ's ethical teaching about, for example, loving one's enemies, doing good to them, praying for them, and so forth, and practicing the golden rule, how can we question his warnings about hell? When he talked about the place where the worm dieth not, the fire is not quenched. I mean, we can't pick and choose. If we readily accept Christ's condemnation of, say, drunkenness as a sin, how can we ignore or explain away His teaching that marriage is between a man and a woman? 
What did Jesus claim for the things he said? Did, did he just say that they are subject to change, but that he advanced them as the best advice for that particular time? Oh, no. If you can turn there fast enough, do so otherwise. It's just a brief phrase, Matthew 24, 35. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And everywhere in the Gospels, Jesus equated his person with his words. If you reject one, you reject the other. If you're ashamed of one, you're ashamed of the other. Therefore, if his person was sinless, his words must be without error. He took extreme care to make sure that the Scriptures were fulfilled. He didn't die. He didn't dismiss his spirit on the cross until he had first cried, I thirst. Why? That the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But as you've heard me say so often in recent years, and as Justin Peters re-echoed last week, the doctrine that is under attack in even supposedly evangelical circles these days is not so much the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, it is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Did Jesus really contend that the Scriptures were enough? I ask you. Because we've got a whole lot of stuff going on these days that sounds good, but it is a direct attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. Oh, it sounds lofty and spiritual and pious and mystical. I don't know if you're aware of it, and I appreciate a, a, a seminar that shepherds had recently on this for pastors. There's a big movement afoot in evangelical Christianity in America by some people in Baptist seminaries who are saying that we need to go back to Greek philosophy. We need to understand Neoplatonism. We need to see what Athens can tell us. It's not just the grammatical historical method that's enough. We need philosophy. This doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is constantly under attack, folks. We must be aware of it. Did Jesus believe that the Scriptures were sufficient? You better believe it. Remember that story of the rich man and Lazarus? In case you want to follow along as I briefly summarize, it's found in Luke chapter 16. I'll give you the basic facts. A poor beggar whose name is given to us, Lazarus, was laid at the gate of a rich man who's not named. And he just ate the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He was filled with sores. He probably didn't live long, didn't have good health care. He died first. And then sometime after that, the rich man died. And the Bible says he lifted up his eyes in hell, being in torment. The beggar went to the other compartment of Hades, known as Abraham's bosom. The rich man made a couple of unusual requests, and in both of these he showed that he expected Lazarus to be his servant in the afterlife just as he had been in life. First of all, he requested that Lazarus be allowed to dip the tip of his finger in water and come across that no man's land into Abraham's bosom 
and cool the tongue of that rich man. He was so grievously tormented in the, his, in the flame that he just wanted a little temporary relief. That's the agony of hell. When Abraham refused this request and reminded him that he'd had his good times in life and now he was being tormented, and the opposite, the tables were turned for, the, for Lazarus, the rich man raised a second question. He said, I pray thee that you would send Lazarus. There again, Lazarus was his lackey. I pray that you would send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers that are still living on earth, and I don't want them to come to this place of torment. Probably he was the oldest of the six, and he knew that they would cast it in his teeth. Why did you not warn us? How did Abraham answer him? Please don't miss this. Abraham's answer was, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Moses and all the Old Testament prophets have been dead for hundreds of years. How could men living on earth still hear them? The only way they could hear them would be to read their inspired writings. And the rich man countered and said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham responded, and clearly Jesus concurred. If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, if they won't hear the Bible they have, the Old Testament Scriptures, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead with singed hair and bloodshot eyes and ashen cheeks and the smell of smoke, they still wouldn't believe. That's the authority of the Word of God. That's the sufficiency of this book. If that doesn't grip us, we've been jaded with other stuff. That's how much Jesus venerated the Bible. That's how much He contended for the sufficiency of it. He equated His own words with Moses' words and writings. He equated His own words with Isaiah's writings. Christ's words are authoritative because they are infallible and they are sufficient. If Jesus said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. His words are infallible. That's what His authority means. Secondly, it means His commands are binding. His commands are binding. Remember what Mary said at the wedding of Cana? Jesus was there with His disciples. They ran out of wine. And she appealed to her son to do something about it. He rebuked her mildly. But then she said to the servants at the feast, Whatsoever He saith unto you, do it. That's good advice. Whatever Jesus says, do it. And Jesus Himself appealed to His disciples in Luke 6, 46, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and, and do not the things which I say? We're going to answer to God if we don't, aren't we? And if we really believe in the Lordship of Jesus' person, how can we not s- submit to the authority of His words? There's a fascinating story of Jesus healing found in Matthew chapter 8, just may have to turn maybe one page over, maybe you won't have to turn at all uh, to get there from where we are in Matthew 7. 
A Roman centurion comes to Jesus on behalf of his sick servant. That shows something of the character of this man. How many Roman centurions were cared about their sick servant? And he explained why he believed that Jesus did not need to come in person to his house to heal him, but just speak the word. Notice verse 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof when Jesus offered to do that. But just speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. And this is the reason he gives in verse 9. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth. And to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, verse 10, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And this was a Gentile. Why did he marvel? What was so special about this Roman centurion's faith. Please don't miss this. Unlike many of us, this centurion realized that just as the authority of Rome flowed through him as a centurion over a hundred soldiers, as long as he obeyed those who had been placed over him, so he recognized in Jesus of Nazareth a submissive channel to the authority of his father. And he rightly inferred that Christ could wield the power of God. He understood this chain of command business. And he saw in Jesus one who was under authority to his father so he could wield that authority. Beloved, we have no right to pick and choose which of Christ's commands we will obey and which are optional. After stating in the Great Commission that all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The resurrected Christ told his disciples, not only go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples, but he said, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. All things. His commands are binding, folks. Thirdly, to understand the authority of Jesus it should mean to us that his judgment is final. We've already revisited Jesus' words in verse 23 of chapter 7, where he professes to those that stand before him, and he's the judge, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, even though they had done many wonderful things, works in his name. He's the supreme judge. But note his authority. He says, me and I. These people are not talking to the Father. They're talking to Jesus. They're saying, Lord, Lord, to the very one speaking to them on the mountains. For the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, judgment is being committed to the Son, just as Jesus says in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 27, the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. And he went on to say in verse 27, he's given him authority to execute judgment. Jesus' word is final. Our Roman Catholic friends have this idea that Jesus is a soft touch. If, if God says no, you, you go to Jesus. And, and then if, if Jesus doesn't seem to understand or let you have what you need, uh, go through Mary. Nobody, Jesus can't say no to Mary, his mother. 
That's a deception of the devil. There's no appeal from the verdict of Christ. Someone has well said, and I've put this in a little text box there. The one who sat there on the mount to teach is the one who at the end will sit on the throne. The throne of his glory. And all the nations of the world shall appear before him and he will pronounce judgment upon them. Do you have any idea how fateful that will be? Can you capture the essence and impact of this scene? I mean, the Sermon on the Mount. This ordinary man, this peasant rabbi, this carpenter's son sitting there and saying, in effect, I, the one that you see seated before you now, will sit on the throne of eternal glory. All the people of all history, all nations will appear before me, and I will pronounce their fate. That's exactly what he's saying. Revelation 20, 15 gives the finality of that judgment. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire from which there will be no escape. It's the prison house of the damned. The Bible does not teach there's a purgatory. The Bible does not teach there's a limbo. There's no reincarnation. There's no probation of some kind after death. People don't get reformed in eternity. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is holy or righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. You've heard it said, as the tree falls, so shall it lie. That's exactly describes people after death and judgment. Revelation 21 verse 27 describes those who will be permanently excluded from the city of the New Jerusalem. I won't take the time to read all those categories, but they're not the kind of neighbors you would want for your children. Moral perverts, guilty of the vilest violence, the drug pusher, the drug, drug crowd. They're not going to be converted Even the rich man in hell wasn't converted. He still wanted Lazarus to do his bidding. He hadn't changed a bit. My dear friends, do not presume upon the mercy of God. May our witnessing be affected by this. When God shut the door to the ark in Noah's day, no one else was saved. Not one I don't care how loudly they shrieked. I don't care how much they protested their goodness and what kind of interaction they'd had with Noah in life for 120 years. I don't care how hard they pounded on that boat of gopher wood. Not one was saved. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Aren't you glad Jesus has open arms right now? And he's saying, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you soul rest. But one day he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. May God give us a sense of the doom of the damned. 
and to the finality of his judgment, or we won't be the soul winners we need to be. What should it mean to us that Jesus spoke with authority? His words are infallible, his commands are binding, his judgment is final. But one more thing, the fourth thing, that is his commission is inescapable. We've already stated that Jesus' authority should mean to us that his commands are binding. And what is his last command? You know it, expressed in all of the Gospels, expressed in the book of Acts, various words. He did it over a period of 40 days, different ways, but essentially the same thing. All power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. Go to all nations. Go to every creature. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world or the age. That's the marching orders of the church, folks, and, and they haven't been rescinded. How can we call him Lord, Lord, and do not the supreme thing that he commands us to do? If we fail to send out the missionaries and get the gospel to the ends of the earth, for us the great commission has become the great omission. His last command must be our first concern. That's not just a cliche. That's exactly the gist of the Bible. And he has all authority in heaven and in earth. And he's delegated this authority to us as we obey. And when you read the biographies of the great missionaries as I've done, and because I was a missionary for a number of years, and oh, it challenged my heart, and it helped to sustain me during the lean times to read about the experiences of other missionaries. You find that again and again and again, they had the boldness, or maybe some people thought the audacity, the presumption, to appropriate Psalm 2, verse 8, a messianic psalm, where the Father says to the Son, ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. And these missionaries, William Carey and Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Judson and John Payton and others, they claimed this promise. And they went out obeying their Savior's last command. Claiming that promise, and God gave them their request, and thousands were crowded into the kingdom of God, though sometimes they had to wait for years for the first convert. And those results came solely through faith and obedience and prayer. I ask you, will we follow in their train? Will we grab the mantle, as it were, of our noble predecessors and smite the waters and say, where is the Lord God of David Brainerd? Where is the Lord God of John, uh, 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 Livingston, David Livingston and Judson and go forth? Do we have any idea how great this commission is and the authority that goes with it? I hope God will do a work in our hearts even before we start this missions conference in three weeks or so. I've shared something of this story before, but I'll end with it. 
1847, a Scottish missionary, John Geddes, set sail with his wife, Charlotte, from their native Scotland, headed to the savage-infested New Hebrides Islands, a long ways away in the South Pacific. It took them 18 months to get there. They didn't go to exactly the island they thought they would go to. They ended up on the island of Aneatium. Upon arrival, they could not believe the depravity of the inhabitants around them. Cannibalism was still being practiced. To eat the corpses of the vanquished enemy was part of the spoils of victory. When a man died, his wife would be strangled so that her spirit could go help him in the land of darkness. And if they had children old enough, it would be the oldest child that would strangle his mother. They lost five of their eight children. They didn't reach adulthood. They built a church but the natives took part of a movement against them and burned it to the ground. A measles epidemic broke out and thousands were killed and they blamed it on the missionaries. But God honored their faith and obedience to their great commission. Thirteen years after they landed on that island, they had 1,400 baptized converts cannibalism was eradicated. The strangulation of wives, the women being beasts of burden, was a thing of the past. After 24 years of laboring in Aneatium, John Geddes broken in health, barely able to walk, took his wife and they were taken to Australia where he died within a year at the age of 58, only 58. A plaque was placed behind the pulpit of his church. It said this, and you'll see it on the screen. When he landed here in 1848, there were no Christians. When he left in 1872, there were no heathen. Do you catch something of the greatness of the authority of our Savior? And he accompanies it with his promise of his presence. Those are the real heroes. Oh, the authority of the resurrected Christ. Do we have any conception how great it is? How will we, we respond to it? Will we do as the multitudes and just say, wow, what a sermon. Never heard a thing like it. The, the scribes don't preach that way. Will we do as Gandhi did and say he loved the Sermon on the Mount, thought it was the most exalted teaching he'd ever heard in his life, but he rejected the divinity of Christ? Or will we do what the only option Jesus gives us, go and obey? Will you bow with me in prayer?
Oh God, thank you for the truth we've been studying on Sunday mornings for more than a year. We must confess it is high. We cannot attain unto it unless you internalize it and by your spirit bring it continually to our remembrance. We're so forgetful. Our hearts grow cold so quickly. Please help us to heed Christ's warnings and obey his commands. Beginning by entering in at that narrow gate which is Christ himself. If we call Jesus Lord, help us to be sincere about it. May we submit to his authority. May we obey his least command and do it from the heart. O Christ, be our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.